Okay, guys, real talk. Sweet Vibes has been with us from day one, and we wouldn't be able to have this podcast or bring you these awesome guests if we didn't have amazing sponsors like them. So first, let me just say, go to www.sweetvibe.toys and enter the code WILDLOVE to get your discount code on all of the amazing vibrators and sex toys. I mean, who doesn't love to have an orgasm? It can be a part of your self-care every single day. You know, wake up, have an orgasm, have a great day, have your coffee. My favorite product right now is the Perfect Match. I mean, it's flexible. It has 10 powerful settings. All of these are under $50. They come in really cool colors. So make sure you check them out and, you know, support this podcast, support our sponsors, and we'll keep bringing you great content. Super exciting news, you guys. I am hosting an all-women's retreat in Nosara, Costa Rica in May. I want you to go visit Revamp Retreats to get more information on that, but it's going to be absolutely amazing. It's in one of my favorite places in the world, Nosara, Costa Rica, and I'm hosting it with one of my best, best, best friends, Caitlin Howe. It's all about bringing a really cool group of girls together and women together to bond and share an amazing experience to grow and transform. And you know what? Have some fun while we're doing it. So check out Revamp Retreats and find out more information. Hope to see you there. Okay, Whitney, this guest, Dr. Chris Creatora, told us everything we might want to know about abortion, about reproductive justice, and about hormones and perimenopause and menopause and your period. I feel like there's just so much information here. There's so much information. I mean, I want to listen to this podcast over again because for me, it made me really understand what hormones are, why I need them, what what does birth control really do? And one of the craziest things that I learned is about testosterone and estrogen when it comes to women. Yeah, so you have to tune in to learn that secret and also the secret of why the year 1973 is so important. But (laughs) somebody I really love is in the studio today. I know. Did you know that there is a lot of fake news in obstetrics and gynecology and information giving about women's sexual and reproductive health. I actually didn't know, but it does not surprise me because I feel like we don't know anything. Well, we know a lot, thankfully. And Dr. Chris Creatura is helping set the record straight (laughs) about everything from hormones to abortion to perimenopause to birth control. I'm so excited that you're here today. Thank you. Thank I'm you. To be here. I know. So excited. We already had great conversations. This is what happens when you have a podcast. You meet somebody in the lobby and then you start having great conversations right out of the gates. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was lucky enough that I actually met Dr. Chris Creatura before this at a conference for sex researchers and sex therapists. And she was doing God's work. She was um, talking about male privilege, mm. uh huh, and talking about hormones. That, yeah, <laughs> we were. You were just great, and I was so it impressed. Was and I, I was watching her talk, and she was the OBGYN of a friend of mine, actually. So I'd heard her name, and you know, when you have that moment when you're interacting with someone or watching her interact with somebody else, and you think this person's going to be my friend. Yes. Like, I I don't really care if she wants it or not. (laughs) I'm going to make sure that I somehow become this person's friend because she's so interesting. That's how I felt about Dr. Chris Creatura. And Uh, here she is. so gorgeous. And we are friends. Well, when we met, actually, I remembered that that's how we met. 
But as soon as we met in the context of me actually trying to be a consultant for you, you she immediately started, jump, she jumped in and started taking care of me saying, oh mm-hmm. yeah, you had to expend so much energy making that guy feel comfortable. And, yes. and how much of our lives do we have to spend actually doing that when we could be doing something more productive? And yes. I felt in those first 30 seconds, like, I want to be her friend. She oh, it worked. Nice. She really gets it. it worked. So we're starting here with female mm-hmm. friendship and also an intense knowledge bomb. I'm we have, so excited. We have, we're going to have access to so much information um, so. thanks to Chris Creator today. Can I start with something yes. a little bit personal, yes. mm-hmm. which is for those of you who are not watching us on YouTube, you should be, because you could see that Chris Creator is the Sansa Stark of obstetrics and gynecology, but also that she's wearing this very cool necklace. Your necklace says 1973. And I think it tells a lot about you that you wear that. Tell us why you wear that necklace and what it means to you. Yeah. Well, this necklace is actually really important because it's actually intended to be a memorial. So 1973 was the year that Roe v. Wade was passed. Mm. And this was a Supreme Court decision that guaranteed a woman's constitutional right to control her body and choose when or if to have a baby. So Mm -hmm. this constitutional right is actually under attack. And I'm very concerned about this year the Supreme Court will overturn that decision. And I'm wearing it to remind people of what they take for granted when they vote. And yeah, that's really scary. That's really scary for all of us. And to have a better understanding of that, what would that mean if they were to overturn Roe v. Wade? Because it's going to impact different women exactly. very asymmetrically, right? right Talk right. about that. Because I, exactly I love how you weave thing. social okay. justice into your medical practice. Right. It's amazing. So what it would mean would depend completely on where you live. So for about half the women in the country... It would mean that they would have no access to abortion services, and it would mean that they would not be able to exercise their constitutional rights. But for about half the women who live in states where we've actually worked very hard to create protections for reproductive health services, it might be a little bit more difficult for some of us, but there are many state legislatures, particularly over the last couple of years, that have made concerted efforts to protect our access to reproductive health care. So everything would depend upon where you live, how much money you have, how much money you what have. kind of insurance you have, whether wow. or not your local hospital is run by Catholics or other religious uh, orders, Ooh. and whether or not you actually live in a community where it's safe to, for, a, for an abortion provider to give you the health care you ask for. I have a feeling Texas is um, not... Texas is what we call an abortion desert, which right. means that there are huge swaths of land where there's no place where a woman can exercise her constitutional rights to get health care. And isn't that amazing with the legacy of Ann Richards there and Cecile Richards, who was so involved with Planned Parenthood for so long and was the president of Planned Parenthood being from Texas, that still Texas is a reproductive rights desert. Right, right. Come on, Texas. I love you guys. (laughs) Let's yeah. Get it together. It would be nice if Texas could get it together. Yeah. Can, yeah. yeah. Can you tell us what, I mean, one of the things that has happened in the shift since 1973 is that not just women who are seeking abortion services have been pressured, but medical professionals are being Absolutely. pressured. Can you talk Absolutely. about that trend right. and how it's right. impacting women's sex lives and One of, one of the fascinating lives. things about a, abortion provision is that There's always going to be a need for an abortion, right? Everyone needs to have abortions sometimes. Mm -hmm. And if 
if nobody does in the room, there's somebody in the room who knows somebody who needs mm-hmm. an abortion, right. right? I mean, most of us estimate that about one in three women will need reproductive health services. In other words, they may need to consider whether an abortion is an option at some point in their lifetime. So that means that we all are going to have to do that. Yeah, right? that's a big number. Right? Yeah, like, huge, yeah. right? So since it's very, very difficult to restrict or reduce the need for an abortion, what people who are against women's health care have tried to do is restrict the um, supply. So by intimidating potential providers, making rules, what we call trap laws, which are targeted regulations of abortion provider laws. That's what a trap law right. is, right. targeted regulation, regulation of abortion, of abortion providers. providers. Okay. provision is another way of looking okay. at it. This has been extremely effective. Because there are a lot of people, a lot of people in my field who really feel very strongly that they went into the field because they want to provide women's health care. Mm-hmm. Right. And they don't feel that they don't agree with a woman's ability to choose when to have a baby. But they may be constricted by threats of violence or threats of social ostracism, mm-hmm. ostracization. Yeah, ostracism, uh, something. So, oh, social you ostracism. You got it. We know what you and mean. They, Stigma. And, yeah. Well, stigma is a big part of a lot of things that interfere with women expressing themselves sexually, as we know. But this is a particular um, focused one because it actually targets people who are essential to making sure that abortion access is possible. Mm, You know what? Speaking of what's fake news, for example, about abortion, Mm -hmm. a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's not natural. This is only since 1973. We have to dismantle these laws. I always go crazy when people talk about what's natural about female sexuality Mm -hmm. or female reproductive um, rights. Because the evolutionary script of female sexuality of many, many species is the females of many species determining whether and when to be a mother all by themselves. Mm -hmm. That's, if you want to talk about a natural order of things, Mm -hmm. we evolved to be in charge of our decisions about mothering. And one of the reasons we thrived as a species is because human females, like females of so many other mammal species, were deciding, you know what? I'm not going to do this right now. This isn't a good time. So it was like maternal cognition about whether and when to be a mom is one of the big reasons we're here. So stop saying. I like that you frame it that way. Yeah. From a practical viewpoint as a, as a physician, I feel like the natural order of things is that one of us would have died in childbirth. Yeah, right? there's that. So, right. so it's not yep. a good thing. Right. right. I, I, I think That's that, right. I think nature is cruel. But choice is right. choice. Choice about whether and when to become a mother is baked into us. And for people to say that access to abortion is like an anomaly is just a weird position. Cause well, I think that, as you know, as an anthropologist, that people have been regulating fertility mm. in all kinds of ways. If you control female sexuality and whether we have a baby or not, mm-hmm. you control everything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. that's why it's so threatening and terrifying. Hey, this is a good segue to talking about birth control mm-hmm. because talk about the 70s being mm-hmm. like a big time mm-hmm. for shifts. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, you know, what birth control means to your patients and just the shift to when the pill came into being? Because I feel like that's part of what inspired you to do what you're doing. Well, I think certainly that there was a very uh, a revolutionary step towards giving women the control of their sexuality 
that happened when oral contraceptives became available. We were just discussing this mm-hmm. because we were right. talking about ways that oral contraceptives or all hormonal contraceptives can affect women's sexual behavior. But I think it's important to remember that when the birth control pill was finally available, it was a revolutionary step that liberated women from the tyranny of their reproduction, Mm -hmm. that women could finally have sex when they wanted to without fear of pregnancy. That was enormous. And that happened in the 1960s. Yeah. So even when it was okay to be on the pill, there was still that extra push that had to happen. So initially it was only available to married women. And wow, then I didn't realize all, that all for how long? All contraceptives were until okay. I think it was 1964. And then unmarried I think it was women were able to I take. it was Griswold versus the state of Connecticut. But oh, look at that. A great lawyer. So, <laughs> you know, I think it's hard for us to imagine. I'm older than you, but I came up in an era where, to your point, I took access to birth control and access to an abortion if I wanted it. And I have done it more than once, I'm Mm -hmm. proud to say. Mm -hmm. Um, I took all that for granted. Same. I mean, that's what we were saying in the lobby was, you know, I grew up always having access to it. I I never didn't have access to it, which was great and beautiful. And I really am so appreciative looking back at that now because it did give me the choice to be sexually active and, and not worry about aging about your sovereignty, not right. just about sex, but everything, planning your future, mm-hmm. controlling your economic status, being able to work. Right. You had access to that because even though you may, it sounds like you were raised in the middle of that abortion desert. Yes. You were close enough to a place where actually you knew that should you become pregnant by accident, you could actually control your future. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that that affects everything. It does. But also you had mm-hmm. access because you were a white woman in a particular geographic location mm-hmm. who had access to a certain amount of money. Right. So that you could actually purchase that freedom. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, that's very true. Most women on this earth don't have access to any of that. Which is incredible to think about because I was imagining not having access to any of that Mm -hmm. and how scary being sexually active Mm -hmm. would be. And that's the point, isn't it? Right. That's the point of people Mm -hmm. who want to take away a woman's right Right. to choose or have easy access to birth control. Mm -hmm. They're basically saying, you are not allowed to have sex without consequence. Right. Exactly. You're not allowed to just have pleasure because you want it and it feels good. That's not a fundamental right for you. But that's part of the basic conservative script is to make sure that if you have agency, that there's a potential punishment. And that's part of the whole. That's part of the whole religious script behind scaring people out of expressing themselves honestly. And it's certainly part of the abortion shaming and abortion stigma Mm -hmm. that women experience. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it was so powerful when Gloria Steinem wore a T-shirt that said. I've had an abortion. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the name of the photographer, whoever you are, I love you. She did a series of photographs of women wearing T-shirts that said, I had an abortion. My personal view is abortion without apology. A lot of people, when they say that they're pro-choice, have a disclaimer, it's terrible, it's not a good option, I would 
be tormented if I had to decide it myself. Um, I wish that it weren't the reality, but I'm pro-choice. Let, let me respond to that. Yeah, because, because that's really what a lot of people say. I like to introduce myself to people as an, not just an abortion provider, but an abortion benefitee, right? Oh. That I could never be the person that I am. I could never take care of the women that I care for had I not been able to have an abortion when I needed one. Mm. And, and I think that all of us who've had access to that kind of health care need to talk about it so that we can take the stigma away. I know that the last Supreme Court decision that actually made it possible for the, um, the Texas decision to be shut down, uh, rejected was actually, I think, partially decided because there were men on that court that were presented with a document by, I think, about 100 women lawyers that signed this and said, we've had abortions. Mm. And when these men mm. actually had to sit across from women that they worked with, that they were sat in the law review with, that they actually went to law school with and understand that the women that they knew, i.e. a lot of white middle-class women, right, mm. that they could identify with. Mm-hmm. And respected that they, that and worked they alongside. see, right, that, yes. they actually, that it affected their decision. Then it mattered. That's in a my only way. hope for the current court that some of those men that are sitting there today could actually think this way mm-hmm. because they can understand that the women that they went to school with, that they work with, that they adore, that they love, need those abortions in order to function. Yeah. Yeah. That all of our lives will be changed. It's such an it's such an important point, right? right? right. That that men but, understand right. that the women right. that they know and love right. will benefit from but this. But the other side of this, of course, is that when we talk about being pro-choice, most women don't have access to the idea of choice at all. There's no marketplace of choices right. that exists for them. Right. And part of the um, deviation or the the or leaving behind that word in the reproductive mm. rights movement to really talk about reproductive justice. Yeah. Because it really incorporates all of the things that people need access to in order to actually control their sexuality and control their lives. So we're switching from saying that we're pro-choice, which we are, to uh-huh. adding we're also pro-reproductive justice. Right. We're pro-human rights. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's I love that. Mm-hmm. Pro-human rights. Right. Yeah. And part of those sexual rights is being able to live in a world where you can express yourself sexually without fear of violence. Mm, Gloria Steinem's other quote that's my favorite that seems like it explains everything that I've ever experienced as a woman in this world is that men fear ridicule the way women fear violence, right? Or I think I got it backwards. Perhaps it's Perhaps it's women fear violence the way men fear fear ridicule. That's deep. But when men are ridiculed, they can actually threaten women with violence, mm-hmm. right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm even saying things like I'm hoping these men in the Supreme Court get around to understanding that women that they know and love need abortions, I'm I'm putting myself out there. I'm going to get somebody yelling at me and threatening me and saying that I should die of cancer or something, you know, that I should have a horrible abortion and die. Men will respond, and women too will respond with threats of violence. Yeah, there's a price to pay when you are disturbing the social right. order. Right. And you keep doing it. Well, well, I like to be radically honest, but <laughs> I also have a, a point of great privilege of right. living in a place where I'm not as worried about being completely mm-hmm. ostracized. Hey, mm-hmm. speaking mm-hmm. of helping all women and people mm-hmm. across the board have mm-hmm. access Speaking of the reproductive justice movement, mm-hmm. you're very involved with Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that really helped me understand who you are, your commitment to Planned Parenthood. Could you talk a little bit about the pressure it's under and why you are so such a big supporter of Planned Parenthood? Well, 
Actually, one of my first volunteer jobs was at Planned Parenthood when I was 17. And when I started thinking about becoming an obstetrician and gynecologist, it was because of the kinds of inequities that I saw in in women trying to get access to health care. And it's related to women's freedom to be sexual, obviously. Mm -hmm. So this was my first volunteer job. I also worked as a volunteer at St. Luke's Medical Center in the Ray Prices program when I was about 18. So Mm. I had uh, exposure to these organizations, and and they certainly shaped, as well as my exposure to Ms. Magazine as as an adolescent, my my viewpoints about what I might be able to do in medicine. And I think, obviously, Planned Parenthood is this country's greatest abortion provider, and we've been under attack for quite a long time by a lot of political forces that are conspiring to make it really impossible for the women that we serve to get access to their health care. And a lot of the ways they operate, one of the ways they operate is through, you know, let's like steal the language from our horrible president, but by promulgating fake news and lies. Do you know that one time, I guess I was in my early 30s and I was pregnant and did not want to be. Mm-hmm. And it was the time when there were telephone books. And right. I was looking mm-hmm. through the phone book right. for abortion providers, right. made a call. Mm-hmm. All I wanted to do was make an appointment. Right. And so the person who got on the phone sounded very official. Oh, yes. How can we right. help you? And, that, and this is a fake pregnancy. Five minutes right. or just three. I was so vulnerable right. at that time as right. a woman who was pregnant and didn't want mm-hmm. to be. I call these people that I'm putting my trust in because right. it says that they're abortion providers. And then this person on the phone starts to say, you know, abortion's really dangerous, right? right. And you know, it's also extremely no, painful. These are, these are it's, pregnancy it's extremely painful. Funded. It's extremely mm-hmm. painful. It's extremely dangerous. You right. know, you might never be able to have a right. baby These again. Are all lies. And you know, you should probably, you should probably um, give the baby. What about what about right. what about keeping the pregnancy? And you could always adoption. Slammed the phone down, right. sobbing like could I was you at work. If that's all. Imagine you had if to? that's all if you I had had. These were like. It's set, set up specifically for women who are looking for abortions or support yes. through These that. These clinics end. set themselves up across the street from abortion providers like Planned Parenthood. They advertise in the phone book. They advertise on the internet. Online. They buy the domains so that if you're searching abortion, you'll get actually funneled to these non they're fake clinics. They're fake, basically. right. They're pretend clinics. And these clinics in many states actually receive federal and government funds. Oh, my God. For telling basically, women you shouldn't. They're clinics that are designed to dis- discourage. To, well, not just discourage, but perpe- like actually deceive women. Deceive women. Right? Thank to you. To tell them That's lies right. about their health care. And, like and you to said, cut them off right. from options. Being in a place right. like so vulnerable, trying to open up, right. find support, and right. to have so them they, like turn the fire on you is just ridiculous. City. That's where and I actually, was. This is how I met the uh, former chairwoman of Planned Parenthood because I was testifying okay. at the uh, city council here in New York City. <sighs> in favor, in support of a law that would require these fake clinics to make clear that they're not medical clinics, that they don't actually employ medical providers, and that they don't provide abortions. So I was testifying at city council. I was the only doctor there. God bless. Thank God for you. The uh, chairwoman of Planned Parenthood and the CEO of Planned Parenthood in New York City were there. And after I testified, they asked me to join the board at Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. I was testifying because of my work with Physicians for Reproductive Health. This is a physician-led advocacy organization that trains physicians to advocate for reproductive health. I love that there is an organization called Physicians for Reproductive Health. Mm -hmm. 
that yeah. feels really important mm-hmm. and, and really big. Advocates all over the country who how are abortion has, providers. How long has that been in in practice? Or about twenty five years. Okay. The, um, the leadership training academy, which was the organization that. Um, well, the Leadership Training Academy is part of the organization that provides the training. Okay. And I'm actually just, just going to start a, um, a campaign to raise funds for this organization now because we've, we've switched over from our major funder. So this is incredibly important right now. This is an organization that started in um, 25 years ago, Physicians for Reproductive Health, but the Training Academy was begun about 10 years ago. So, so far, we've trained about 400 physician advocates around the country who do things like testify at city council meetings, write to their uh, Congress people, testify when they have to be um, considering certain types of legislation, testify before the court, write uh, letters to the editor or speak to the media about women's health. And, you know, make no mistake, these doctors are taking a big risk. And most of them are taking an enormous risk. So right. but we just so much appreciation and love for the doctors who do that. And that's yeah. for like federal pushback, so social pu- pushback, all of the above. There's a lot of shaming and bullying everywhere, not just the internet, but even locally. People mm-hmm. get threatened, their children get threatened, and their houses are uh, under under watch by people who threaten to threaten them with violence. Mm-hmm. There and are endless ways in which they do it, and I don't even want to list them all because it's just I feel like it feeds people. Yeah, mm-hmm. listen, the the fact that part of the anti reproductive justice movement um, lies and deceives right. and promulgates fake information. Right to discourage women and to cut them off from access. Let's like transition a little bit because you're a truth teller about female sexual health and female sexual pleasure. I try to be. Yeah, the let's talk truth teller I can. Let's talk about the other things. Um you sent us a list of things that are yeah. untrue yeah. about female sexual health and well-being right. and female reproductive health. Right. Can we go through it? Please. I would I love that. I think that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the First things, and these are so relevant to our listeners, whether you're male or female or neither. One of the first things you say is that, and this is going to be a, a big segue from abortion, but you say that it's untrue. These two statements are both untrue. Hormones are dangerous uh-huh. and hormones are safe. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us from your expert perch here why both those statements are untrue? Well, they're both. What are hormones and what are they? Why do we even need them? Why do we need them? <laughs> Everything in our body is controlled by hormones. Mm-hmm. All of our behaviors are controlled by hormones. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the way in which hormones, uh, the, way, the way in which we should be making uh, blanket judgments or statements about hormones. And this is why I like to say that hormones are safe, hormones are dangerous. Well, neither of those things is actually true, right? So a lot of what we talk about when we talk about using hormones to take care of women during their major um endocrine transitions in life like puberty and pregnancy and menopause is based on some blanket statements that we make about hormones and particularly uh in the in the context of menopause Whitney's like I'm writing this down yes I'm selfishly like yep uh uh-huh taking notes (laughs) menopause hormones uh, menopause hormonal treatment uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding in the medical profession about what that means. So a lot of what we talk about with menopause is uh, based on one particular study. 
And that was the WHI study or the Women's Health Initiative study oh, yeah. that came out in 2002 and, and resulted in a lot of fear about hormone therapy. And it was a dumb, sorry, not a dumb study. It was a, it, it's data that we have, but they only treated, study. they treated women only who had already been through menopause and they were 60 and older. People misunderstood yeah. what the study was designed yes. to, to determine. They globalized the it, right? Exactly. The study was designed to determine whether or not women remote from menopause, i.e. women don't have symptoms anymore, women who are far away from the menopause transition actually had any cardiovascular benefit it if you gave them hormone therapy. That was the question it was designed to answer. Right. And it turned out that the information we got from the study was that if you start a particular formula of hormone therapy remote from menopause, it didn't have an impact on heart disease. That's the most important finding of the study. It wasn't negative. It wasn't positive. That it was, was the, that, that particular was, finding, right. and yet it got globalized, and women in droves right. Right. ran away from hormone replacement right. therapy, which, by the way, has improved my life so hugely, I can't even tell you. And I was so grateful to have access to better information mm-hmm. because as I was going through perimenopause mm-hmm. for like, what, like 15 freaking years, yeah. mm-hmm. all the only information I had was like, yeah, HRT is bad. Right. You know what the other only information we have is like most people think, and you can understand why, estrogen is a female hormone and testosterone right. is a right. male hormone. Right. Well, that's one of the other things and, on our list of untrue, right? Yeah. Because androgens, which, of which testosterone is one, is a very, androgens are a very important female hormone. It regulates our sex drive. It regulates our behavior. We have a lot more testosterone than we have estrogen. So why anyone decided that estrogen was the only important female hormone? Wait, women have more testosterone than we do estrogen. Mm -hmm. Wow. I like how you pulled out the big Mm -hmm. insight that's going to surprise our listeners there. That is is not what I have been taught or I have not understood that at all. Okay, you know why? And I've been the person. I love that fact. I I feel like I have an extra amount of testosterone. Mm Just naturally. Mm-hmm. So I've always thought, oh, I need more estrogen, which <laughs> right? maybe, I don't know. Like, I don't really know much about hormones. But what, also, what made you think you needed more estrogen? Just society. Oh. Like when the pageant people would tell you, like, your body isn't feminine enough. Right. My body's not oh. feminine. I'm very oh, muscular and athletic yeah. naturally. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of people would tell me my behavior is not feminine enough either. So maybe, yeah, hey, me girl, too. We <laughs> both bought into the idea that we needed a little more estrogen. Right. But you I know, think that's really interesting to think about because that is so huge that women yes. actually have more testosterone right. than we have okay, estrogen, and what, but we're not being yeah, fed that. We're no, not being fed that. No, and, no, the, and women are not yeah. being treated appropriately so that when they go through menopause transition, they're not actually getting testosterone replaced. By the way, the reason people can't wrap their minds around that, that women have more testosterone than we have estrogen, mm-hmm. is because... It's not just talking about our hormone profiles. It's messing with this deep idea we have about maleness and femaleness, right? Right, right. right. Which is why I love your and work again, on hormones. Sexuality, because <laughs> just guess what the big arbiter of sexual desire is? Androgen. Testosterone. Testosterone. So if you're going to give it to women, you you might actually mess with their desire, right? Like you might actually give them desire. Whoa, don't want that happening. Oh my God, please and don't. desire is <laughs> the reason that there's abortion no. stigma, right? Because if women are going to have sex, they should be punished for it. Ooh, and so it's all linked. It's all it's so linked. It's all so linked. It's really quite terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to like, so 
selfishly for me and everyone that's on birth control, what exactly are the hormones that you're taking when you take birth control? Because that's what it is, right? So birth control just refers to all types of contraception. So we're going to talk about hormonal contraception. Okay, right. So like oral contraception. So when you talk about oral contraception, which is what many people think of when they say the term Or it can be the patch, right? Or the pellet. I'm going to disregard the patch and the pellet and they are not really pellets, they're implants and the ring because they're all different forms of using the same two hormones, which are estrogen and progesterone. And those are the two hormones that actually regulate uh, pregnancy. Okay. So... I think testosterone is also important, but this is an unpopular view, and I don't have the science to support that. But let's just stick to the estrogen. <laughs> so and we'll talk about that at dinner. Yeah, because <laughs> exactly. estrogen and progesterone are the hormones that were actually being studied when the birth control pill was being developed. So basically, what happens is if you take a little bit of estrogen and progestin every day, you fool your pituitary into thinking that you've already made an egg, and therefore the pituitary doesn't need to send that signal to your ovary. So if the pituitary is not sending that signal to your ovary, no egg is made and therefore no pregnancy can happen. It's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. And you just need a little bit of hormone because the pituitary is paying very close attention to the hormone levels in your bloodstream. And that's how all hormonal contraception works, save the hormonal IUD, which is a slightly different, different mechanism. So when you take oral contraception, you're taking estrogen and progestin. And there are many different forms of estrogens and progestins, right? There are lots of different steroid hormones that vary slightly in their chemical composition. So your question about the oral contraceptives that you asked me in the lobby right, yes. was when you came off of it, you felt like, what is I just felt, felt so much. So I was on, for people that don't know, I was on um, birth control for like 14 or 15 years. I haven't been on birth control for the past three or four uh-huh. years. And once I got off, there was a, it was a little bit challenging. I broke out a lot. So I was 27 or something with like teenage acne. Your come acne on, please. Back. Guess what else came back when you came off the birth control pill? Your androgens went up. Your mm. testosterone went up. Yeah. So that came back, which and is not fun. Back? And I also thought, shit, I should just get back on birth control because mm-hmm. I'm vain. And right. <laughs> it was like, I right. needed to figure this out. Right. But also my... My um, libido came right. back. I was way hornier, because which your was libido great. Is connected to androgens. That mm-hmm. my mood. I was happier. I felt I had more energy. I could focus more. Like there were so many things in my life that mm-hmm. drastically improved mm-hmm. by not being on the pill. Mm-hmm. And like we said, it's it's amazing that this was invented to allow us to really enjoy our sex lives. Right. I just don't feel like I was given the appropriate information to really understand what this was doing to my body. Nobody was because actually no one was thinking about female sexuality when they were creating the birth control pill. They were just trying to prevent the, the pregnancy. Of pregnancy. Because no who one cares? wondered whether or not we were going to actually make women less sexual by giving them birth control pills or it's, depression. Right? right? Isn't that something that really comes well, along with the pill? I mean, there are people who have hormonally sensitive depression. Not everybody feels depressed on the pill. In fact, as we were saying, many people feel liberated by being right. on the pill because they don't have to worry about pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And many people treat premenstrual mood dysphoria with birth control pills because by suppressing that rise and fall of hormones for a lot of women, it actually regulates their mood in a positive way. So I don't like to say anything completely definitive when it comes to hormones. Right. Because right. different individuals are sensitive to hormones in different ways. I'm getting the impression that if we cared about female sexuality a little bit more, there would be um, and if we funded this research, if it really mattered mm-hmm. on many mm-hmm. levels, including mm-hmm. the institutional level, yep. mm-hmm. we would be able to fine tune much better because it would yes. be a medical priority. Exactly. Say, don't be crazy. Exactly. 
<laughs> whoa, I just went crazy. Well, well, there are a couple of really <laughs> promising developments. And I really want you to understand that even the things that I'm talking about that we talked about in the lobby mm-hmm. is just critical of some of the um, the ways in which medicine has, has really disregarded women's sexual needs is changing so much. And a big yeah. part of why it's changing is that we have more women in medicine. Mm-hmm. Yes. We have more women doing the research. The majority of sex researchers are actually women. I love The majority that. of gender researchers are women. And there are a lot of men who are in the sexual medicine field who are listening to women. Yeah. Because they like them and they want to have sex with them and they want to make sure that the world is better <laughs> so for them. And I like you, <laughs> doctor, good. male but doctor who loves important. us. <laughs> I mean... Right. You know, I mentioned that you don't want to be categorically against hormone therapy. I don't want to be categorically critical of the way in which birth control pills could affect somebody's yeah, sexuality. Yeah, you would hate for anybody way, to say the right? pill is bad. Well, people do though. I yeah, mean, people. I have a, really a lot smart of people say it. Who's done a lot for women's sexual medicine? Who calls birth control oral contraceptives rat poison? Oh come on! And I think that right. that's really, really not fair. No, it's not. I there think are that's so dangerous. Many women who really need access to oral contraception? Yeah, mm-hmm. and they need options. And we need right. it refined. And we need doctor, the science. Fine. We yeah. need to be fine. Right. Oh, if your ahead. doctor is saying it's rat poison, then how are you supposed to trust them? And like, yes. oh my God, they're feeding me rat poison. Well, I mean, then you think my doctor's trying to kill me. Right. It's just like the FDA boxed warnings on all of the hormone therapies that are available in this country. Every single one of them has a boxed warning that says if you use this, even if it's not scientifically uh, supported, if you use this product, you need to be aware that you could have a stroke, a heart attack, dementia, um, urinary incontinence. All of these right. things are not actually scientifically valid, but it, there's a class labeling for all estrogen-containing drugs. Mm, good. But so there are people working on this, okay? Men and women who are working on this to change it. And some really important papers were published in the last 18 months on androgens and women. Okay. So you, I love you your point. And this is a point I always make in my book on true, that when women enter different scientific fields, whether it's field science, sex research, anthropology, whatever it is, they bring different forms of identification right. and curiosity right. and compassion and empathy. And that changes the science. Of so course. if you're listening and you're like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Even if you're like 35 or 50 and you're like, I don't feel grown up, what could I be? Okay, think about going into science. Well, because too, like the more what? women who care about female reproductive health and sexual right. health in science, the better for all of us. Sorry, what were no, you going to say? No. I also, because I wrote this down too, I just want to know what are the ways that we can, that people can help basically like what you're saying is what can we do to help this initiative and really support this if we aren't, I'm not a doctor, but I want to be able to help and I'm not going to go to med school. (laughs) So what are the ways that we can show up and really benefit? We're influenced by people who actually write and report and write books like Untrue or hold podcasts about female sexual health. These are things that you are doing already. Because you're giving voice to people who are actually taking care of patients and they aren't necessarily going to be able to reach a lot of patients. I may have certain viewpoints that could be very helpful to you or to you, but I can't reach everybody Mm -hmm. and make them aware of it. I'd love to talk to people about androgens all day long, but most people don't want to talk (laughs) about it. I want to be there. Me too. They don't want to fund the research. (laughs) Have a dinner party. Right. So I want to switch for a minute to talk about another big hormonal transition that women go through. There's puberty. Mm -hmm. um, And then another important transition is perimenopause. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners, because I think a lot of our listeners are going through it or have a friend who's going through Mm -hmm. it or care about somebody. Yeah. what Mm -hmm. is it? Yeah, exactly. I have no clue. Well, I want to start by saying what menopause is. Great. And then talk about perimenopause. Perfect. Because menopause, we define in medicine as literally being 
you haven't had a period for a year. Okay, that's, that's it. it. Right? When you don't have your period for a year, that's you really. Mm-hmm. It's very arbitrary, but you know, you need to have something to define it by. But right? even at like a certain is that's that the, not that's age? different. That's different if you were just So if I didn't have a period for a year, I would technically by medical definition be going through menopause. Well, that's a very at good 30. question. Unless you're like anorexic. Obviously, or... if you're a 30-year-old who came off the pill and didn't have a period for a year, mm-hmm. I would do a test to see if you're going through menopause. But I might do some other tests to figure out why you didn't get your period for a year. Okay. Right? So we have something we call post-pill amenorrhea, which just means you stopped the pill and you didn't get your period for a while, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of terms that we use in, in medicine to try to quantify and, and rationalize things that happen in people's lives. But the, the concept of a perimenopause, I think of as just a decline in one's reproductive and endocrine functioning. And unfortunately, it's actually happening from the time that you're in your late 30s until you stop menstruating. And it actually continues beyond when you don't menstruate anymore. It just doesn't change as dramatically. So many women, once they get remote from that transition, don't feel as though there are as many hormonal fluctuations because their hormone production is actually steadier. But it's the decline in reproductive function that starts in your mid-30s and heads into the, the cessation of menses. Oh, Lord. It is actually about 15 years, yeah. right? That was a long I know you were haul. telling me this the other day. I was telling you. I was like, I don't want to scare you, but but here's but the, prepare here's, to be terrified. No, I, well, you know what? It aging was, is a process. Aging right? is a it's process. Not like it begins and ends at a certain place. Talk about us yeah. not knowing enough about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm so glad you're here because many women are going through Perry. I. I always say I would for many years, mm-hmm. if I couldn't find something, if mm-hmm. I snapped at somebody, yeah. if I started sobbing, whatever, I always thought this is just PMS. This is just PMS. But mm-hmm. then I learned about perimenopause mm-hmm. and then I would say, oh, it's a bitch named Perry. Perry's here. <laughs> and that helped me. How about it's just life? Hormones yeah, affect or life. behavior. Men, yeah. have, men have PMS surges every single day. Women who are not on hormonal, I remember sitting in medical school and and realizing when we were talking about the endocrine system, which is like we always talk about men in medical school, and then you talk about the little section on reproduction where you learn about women. Uh, So this was 1982, okay? So we were uh, learning about the endocrine system. And I knew already because I had worked at Planned Parenthood and I loved endocrinology, I knew already how the menstrual cycle worked. So I knew that there was a surge of pituitary hormones that happened every month and then that that declined. But then I learned in medical school that men have these little surges Mm -hmm. of their pituitary hormones every day. Okay, say more. surge every day. So I thought, well, that's why they're so irritable all the time. They're going through a cycle <laughs> every day. Every single day. I get it. They're so Makes hormonal. sense. Yeah. Sensitive all the time. jobs if they can't actually, you know, I don't know if they can be trusted, like, especially with the no. nuclear button. I don't think no, men no, should no. be able to be president if no. they're having all those hormonal no. surges and declines all no. the time. It's something to think about. Are there certain times of day that maybe we should not hang out with them? <laughs> that is a great question. I would love to be able to plan my day yeah. out. So yeah, perimenopause, so perimenopause usually starts what, in the mid-30s? Well, I would say that most women don't feel that they have symptoms that are disruptive. What many women experience is a gradual decline in some of their um, in some of their sexual desires. A lot of women feel that their behavior will change, that their metabolism changes, that their sleep changes. So these can be very subtle and they don't exist in every person. Mm. So I found in my practice that I was hearing from women as they were passing the age of 40, 41, that their metabolism was changing, their sleep was changing, their skin was changing, their hair growth was changing. What do you mean changing? People would come in and say, I'm losing my hair. Okay. My hair is thinning. 
I'm not able to sleep as well. I don't feel as rested. I feel mm. fatigued. I feel like I'm getting body fat in places I didn't get it. I feel like I can't maintain my weight with the same exercise and activity that I used to right. maintain with, right? And I realized that that's so interesting that it seems like all these women that I've known are coming in around 40, 41, mm. 42, and they're starting to complain of this. And isn't that fascinating that 41 is also around the age at which most people lose their reproductive capacity? Uh-huh. So it's got to be connected to something that the ovary is doing. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the ovary is re- connected to your brain, which is connected to your thyroid, right. which is connected to your adrenal gland. Like all of this is gradually changing. Yeah. And you know what? When we look at people's hormone levels, they do they do start to decline at that same time. Is there anything that we can do? So I'm 30, and yeah. at some point I will be going through this if I don't die yeah. before then. Um, <laughs> can I? Is there anything? That we can do to be proactive to kind of help that transition. Proactive that about older. Perry. Yeah. Mm, that's a great question. How can we be friends with Perry? Perry well, proactivity. I think that a lot of people would like to know how not to age, right? So there's a there's a huge industry on anti-aging. But I would say to anyone as young as you that what you want to be sure of is that you're developing good health habits that you refrain from things that actually will lead you to have the inevitable processes of aging more rapidly, mm-hmm. like cigarette smoking, certain drug use, okay. alcohol consumption, right. you know, inactivity, obesity, poor diet. I mean, these are the things that we know can actually affect one's progression to dementia or weight, uh, weight problems, mm-hmm. uh, sleep, dis- sleep dysfunction. You know, I, I don't think anybody wants to know how to stay the exact same age because I don't think we're going to be able to manage that. I'm okay. I'm actually okay with aging. I've never had felt – I feel, at least when I hit 30, right, a lot of my friends are like, oh, my God, we're 30. The world's ending. I'm thinking like whatever. Say, just put on a like, bikini I'm and take so, as many pictures as possible. <laughs> I just love that. Love I'm where so you are. I'm excited about being like 40. I just want to be able to like take care of my body and be able yes. to age gracefully yes. and, and celebrate. For me, just knowing the term perimenopause was yeah. really helpful. And yeah. I knew that it was kind of a bad, baggy rubric yeah, and that it, it contained is. a lot. But just knowing that I could say, right. oh, this is right. a stage that I'm in was right. really helpful to me. That's yes. good to know. Yeah. And I have to say mm-hmm. at 54, uh-huh. like – I've never been so babelicious. Like so just when you when you're talking about I mean feeling wise and I love my body, I love um my sex life, I love the way I feel and I love not worrying about being getting pregnant. Well, there's a certain freedom there's to There's so that. many Absolutely. upsides to yeah, yeah. menopause and that we don't talk about. I was saying in the lobby that one of the nice things about being 59 is that the invisibility that you start to earn as a woman is actually liberating. That you mm. start being just a person. You and, start being more of a person, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, right. Because I can travel by myself and go places by myself and occupy space in a different way. You do mm-hmm. take up space yeah. in a different yeah. way as you age. And I thought that I would like start disappearing in a negative way. For me, it was more an adjustment where I felt more entitled to space, maybe because there were fewer cat calls. I don't know what it was. I, You know yeah. what? I don't even, it's I'm not even going to link it to invisibility. I'm going to link it to as I aged, I became increasingly self-confident mm-hmm. and getting on HRT like helped me. Thank you. You're get welcome. back in the game. <laughs> yeah. And 
feel better than ever. I just think life experience for women is so underrated because we focus so much on what women are losing. Mm -hmm. Like good riddance to pregnancy for me, good riddance Mm -hmm. to worrying about pregnancy, good Mm -hmm. riddance to having really tiny kids that exhausted me. I want women to think that it could be liberating. If we're going to live a third of our life beyond menopause, we want to be sure that since we know that hormones affect our behavior, we want to be sure that we have good science that gives us access to hormone replacement that yeah. allows us to to stay vigorous, to feel healthy, to feel like our brains are intact, to feel that our sexuality is intact and to enjoy it. Yeah. So we need to have good science that that creates better rubrics for treating women with androgens. I feel like this is a good, hopeful place for us to be stopping. You gave us such an education today. Oh, thank you. I know. I really want to have you back on because I feel like this is like, we need this as a reoccurring guest. Yeah, we do. You You should become a regular guest answering people's questions that they send in. We could do a Um, Q&A. We could do different themes. Let's do that. All right. All right. just you'll find her here. You'll find her here on our podcast. We're going to convince her to come back. And she'll be our special guest Thank you. over and over. Thanks. It's a great privilege to get to talk to you about women's sexuality. Mm, Thank, Thank you, you for so being much. here, Chris. Thanks, Dr. Creatura. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.